welcome to Closer Look. I'm Maria Morgan. The election's coming up, as you know. Maybe you have some questions about how things work, or maybe you could use a refresher on what you learned in 10th grade American government. Let's get that refresher from our guest, and uh, she might even help us have some fun with it. She's Katie Kennedy. She taught American government for 30 years, and she's written a children's book about the Constitution called The Constitution Decoded. It's basically a step-by-step guide to the U.S. founding document. Welcome to Closer Look. Thank you so much. What do you find are the biggest misconceptions about the U.S. Constitution? What do people assume about it that you say, well, no, that's not so? People find a lot of rights in the Constitution that are very specific, um, like the right to the last piece of pie, um, or the right to have your gas tank refilled by the guy who borrowed your car. I, I will admit that these may be sort of inherent God-given rights, but they're not actually explicitly listed in the Constitution. And, and it's amazing the things people will find in the Constitution without actually having read it. It's um, it, it's enjoyable things like the uh, young man who asked me if the requirement uh, for the qualification for a president listed in the Constitution that the president has to be a natural-born citizen means that he could not, in fact, be president because his mother had a C-section. Um, and I was able to assure him that having a C-section does not mean that he's not natural-born um, and that he could, in fact, still be president. I'm glad you clarified. <laughs> That was kind of a fun question. So uh, we get those things sometimes. Sometimes uh, students will talk about the Bill of Rights, those first 10 amendments uh, to the Constitution, really so many basic rights, and think that they're in priority order. That is, that the first is more important than the fifth or something like that. And they're actually in the order that Roger Sherman put them in uh, when he was secretary at a meeting, and they were trying to decide uh, whether to simply slip each amendment into the spot it would be in in the original document, or whether to just list them all at the end. And uh, Madison, James Madison, uh, who was the most important of all the the writers of the Constitution, wanted simply to uh, slip them into the spot that they should go in the the original document. Sherman just wanted to list them all at the end. And as you know, Sherman won, and we simply have them listed at the end. But while he was at the meeting, he was bored, and he was putting them in the order he would have to later on if that's the way he had to do it. So being no fool, he didn't rearrange them. He just put his list in the way it was. Uh, So that's a secretarial thing. Just a a personal choice, basically. Absolutely. That's almost a little distressing that so much of history happens just because it's what somebody, somebody just sighed and did it the way they wanted to. You bet. What do you imagine that debate sounded like at the original Constitutional Congress? Well, you know, they didn't keep any kind of a, um, and the one with the Bill of Rights was after the the Constitution had been um, ratified and and adopted and so on. But uh, while they were actually uh, working on the Constitution, I suspect it was fairly pointed uh, because they tried very hard to keep anybody from overhearing the conversations. In fact, um, continued to to keep some of the chattier um, delegates from from being able to talk, uh, tried to keep uh, Ben Franklin's mouth shut and so on. And um, he would speak at dinner parties. Uh, if a pretty lady came up and asked Ben Franklin something, he'd tell them anything. And so they sent chaperones to dinner parties with him so that he wouldn't talk. In fact, he was, of course, older at that point and, and had some trouble walking. And they had uh, inmates from the Walnut Street Jail would uh, carry him in a sedan chair uh, in the morning to the Constitutional Independence Hall to the, the convention to talk. And then they would walk back to jail for the day. Uh, until it was time to go pick him back up again. Why was it important to the founding fathers having these discussions to keep things quiet during that period of time? 
They wanted to be able to be honest and have pointed conversations and not have it come back on them later uh, because they were undertaking a completely new kind of thing. Uh, and it was difficult. And uh, James Madison, uh, so brilliant, a, a very small man physically, uh, quite brilliant, showed up first. Uh, he was there for several months, really, before anybody else got there and did his homework and did his reading and took his notes. Pretty well knew what he wanted by the time everybody else showed up. And it was partly a matter of manipulating other people at that point. Madison was not a very forceful guy in temperament, so it took him a while to badger people around to his point of view. Um, he was not one to just pound a table and shout, but um, Madison uh, showed up first and worked the hardest and um, had the biggest hand in, in shaping the document. How is the U.S. system truly different or unique from other countries back then and also modern day. The emphasis on democracy, on allowing the people to vote, there was quite a feeling that they perhaps had gone too far. And it was like designing a complex machine and then pushing the, the on button and not knowing exactly how it was going to work. What they designed was a republic. You know, the power would be held by the people and by their, the people that they elected, not by a king, not by a monarch. And in fact, very famously, as uh, they were leaving and coming down the steps of the hall, a woman shouted out to Ben Franklin, who everybody knew was the weak link. Everybody knew Franklin was the guy to get a hold of. You know, she shouted out and asked what kind of government they had. Uh, they had no idea. They might have a king. They, they just didn't know. And Franklin famously said back, a republic, if you can keep it. Why do you think people find it difficult to understand the Constitution, to digest it, to, to, and to retain maybe what they've learned about it? Part of it is the language. Uh, the language was a little bit stiff, even in its day. So it's not just the passage of the centuries. Part of it is James Madison was not quite as good a writer as he thought he was. It was one difficulty with coming up with a translation because the Constitution Decoded has the original text on one side and then a, a translation on the facing page. And we wanted to make it so that people could go back and forth and understand every clause, every phrase. But there were some passive voices and some convoluted passages that my editor and I were just tearing our hair out of. So part of it is simply the language itself. Um, part of it is that it is very, very specific because it has to be. But for example, there was a case that um, the Constitution says that uh, members of Congress have to live in that state um, at the time of the election. There was someone who moved to the state but didn't live there on election day, but moved afterwards, and that gets forwarded. Um, and in fact, they lost their um, they lost their election. They were not certified and could not go forward as the representative because they did didn't live in that state on the day of the election. So the Constitution says you have to be a certain age and so on, but you don't have to be that age on the day of the election. But it says you have to live in the state on the day. So it's some very, very fine threads to split there. And I think that's a little hard to retain too. Welcome to Closer Look. I'm Maria Morgan. Katie Kennedy taught American government for 30 years, and she's written a children's book about the Constitution. It's basically a step-by-step -step guide to the U.S. founding document. You named your book, The Constitution Decoded, so it obviously needed a little bit of um, explanation uh, yeah. <laughs> in some spots particularly. Coming up, we have the 2020 election. What does the Constitution say about elections? Well, um, I mean, not very much, really, to be honest. Um, it focuses solely on elections for um president, vice president, which it talks about the most because of the electoral college and the, the complexities involved with that uh, and, and the amendments that change that. It says that um, elections are run at the state level. 
there's not a national election. They're, they're done state by state, and the results um, are forwarded. Um, it talks about um, the um, January 20th at noon, the president's term ends, and that's a, a set thing. Um, that's very clear in the Constitution. Um, so at that point, um, if there has not been a clear winner and there isn't someone to inaugurate, uh, the vice president-elect would act as president, and, and that's the 20th Amendment. 22nd Amendment, of course, limits the president to two terms. Um, the 25th Amendment uh, says that if, if the president dies or, or is removed, the vice president actually becomes president. And that's a thing that, uh, like I said, uh, election-specific, but important certainly for, for those issues. That was something that they didn't know uh, when it first happened, so what we call the Tyler precedent. William Henry Harrison died in 1841 uh, after 31 days in office, quite unexpectedly. Um, his vice president had no idea he was even that ill, and nobody really realized uh, or knew if the president um, will be replaced by an acting vice president who's, who's simply doing the job but not really president, um, or it, does he actually become president? And John Tyler just walked in, um, strutting his stuff, said, I'm president, moved in, literally, um, and started doing the job. And his cabinet, um, Harrison's cabinet, challenged him, and and Tyler said, well, you know, then you can resign, uh, and simply took over. And so after that, the vice president simply became president because John Tyler had decided that's what the Constitution said. But the 25th Amendment um, confirmed that, and so on. There's a whole lot about how the Electoral College will be run. Um, it's really kind of complicated. They, they kind of split every hair that they can. Um, but the Electoral College has been the source of quite a bit of, of um, difficulty and in, in arguments and um, uncertain times in the country. And of course, we've had five times where the winner of the popular vote did not win the Electoral College, including in 2016 and also in, in 2000. And uh, it talks about what you do if the, um, you know, if people die, what you do if there's a tie. Uh, in a case like that, um, uh, if you wind up with an Electoral College tie, the House of Representatives chooses who's the president um, and the Senate chooses who's the vice president. Why did the framers go to so much trouble to outline a system that would uh, throw these things into doubt? I mean, one of the simplest questions is why don't we have a president elected by a majority? The Electoral College is there uh, as kind of a compromise by people who were um, setting up a new government. They were trying to put in safeguards and, and fail-safes, sort of like a second lock on the door, essentially. Um, and they wanted a way that if people ever elected someone who was had no qualifications, who was obviously incompetent, who was a con man, you know, something of that variety, someone who just was not up to the job, uh, not meaning someone that they disagreed with policies, but someone, simply somebody who was not suited for the position. That there was a fail-safe and a way to keep that person out of office. Um, there were concerns by uh, Georgia and South Carolina. Um, you know, what do you do if you get a president who comes in who um, wants to eliminate slavery? Something like that. Uh, and some of the things in the Constitution that are there are meant as stops to uh, the slave states to try to um, save that. So at its core, the Electoral College, as defined by the Constitution, was a fail-safe, a backup against, in case that majority was um, duped by the person that they elected. Yeah, in case something went really wrong, maybe something they didn't even anticipate, sort of a last-ditch effort to be able to 
you know, save the republic. Aren't the electoral representatives required to vote according to their states, though? Isn't it redundant? No. They're not. Um, a few states have begun to put in laws requiring them, threatening fines if they don't, and some things like that. But they're, we call them faithless electors. So the elector is the person who votes in the electoral college. So you and I vote for the slate of electors. We might see the, the president's name on the ballot, but we're really voting, of course, for the people who will vote for the president. But uh, if the elector does not, in fact, uh, do that, then they're called a faithless elector. Um, and there have been more than 150 uh, in U.S. history. They have never, uh, and in fact, the last election was uh, had by far the most. Uh, there was kind of a, quite a sharp uptick uh, in the last election in people who did not vote the way they claimed they did, which means that people like you and I lose our votes. So some of the people who argue against the Electoral College and would like to see it eliminated make that argument that if you have a faithless elector, you, you have lost your vote. You voted for, you know, candidate A and they voted for candidate B. And how does your vote count in a situation like that? Welcome to Closer Look. I'm Maria Morgan. Katie Kennedy, she taught American government for 30 years, and she's written a children's book about the Constitution called The Constitution Decoded. The Electoral College obviously is quite controversial nowadays, but up until now or up until X years ago, was it generally agreed that it was a a, a wise fail-safe, that it was a, a good thing? The, the Electoral College has had um, some folks, have, have the people who support it, point to the idea that in um, if it's just a straight popular vote, it would still be done by states because the Constitution mandates that. It won't be a nationwide election, but it would be um, state elections. But um, the, the fear that more populous areas would have their concerns addressed and that um, presidents would simply overlook smaller places. You know, so, so much for, for Wyoming or I live in Iowa, you know, kind of a bit of a rust belt agricultural state, not a real big population. And um, would anybody ever come to Iowa? Would anybody ever listen to quite a number of the states if they didn't have to because of the Electoral College? Uh, so there are concerns that way as well. I have heard that the Electoral College was in part placed to protect the smaller, less populous states. Yes, kind of part of the great compromise of, of, you know, how do you put together a government that protects both large populous states like Virginia at the time without leaving behind the New Hampshires um, and simply they can simply always be outvoted. And does that mean that Virginia rules the world and the smaller states just get whatever happens to be left over every single time? And so that's, you know, that's part of the concern and people are hoping uh, that the Electoral College would you know, it would help and kind of continue that, that spirit of the Great Compromise and help the smaller states. So in, in the times of the framing, it was maybe Virginia versus New Hampshire, New Hampshire versus Virginia. And in modern day, New York and California versus maybe the entire rest of the country as far as population concentration goes. New York, California, Florida, Illinois, and, and good luck to Wyoming, right? Or New Hampshire or Iowa. Or, or New Hampshire, or yeah, or Iowa. So if Donald Trump is not certified president or Joe Biden is not certified president January 20th, who would be president on that day if it has not been decided then? Donald Trump's um, term, um, I mean, his, his, I'll say his first term because I don't know if there will be a second one. But to, just to be clear, um, his first term ends on January 20th. And there's no question about that. The Constitution is very clear about that. Um, so it is possible that 
the Supreme Court could be meeting that afternoon. We may, in fact, be in uncharted constitutional territory, and we may, in fact, have to rely on the patriotism um, and the intelligence of our candidates um, and our senators to support the system uh, rather than try to get their own person into power. A prayer point for sure. Yes, Um, yes, indeed. Let's get into specifics about the president. I'm often comforted remembering that the president of the United States, whoever he or she is, is not a king. They do not have the authority to just say off with their heads. They can, well, they can say it, but they have no power. What is the job that voters are hiring a president to do for four years? Ah, well, in the United States, the president uh, has a huge job, an almost unmanageable job, which is why you typically see people aging so much in four years, you know, uh, those sort of before and after pictures of presidents. The president of the United States is both the head of state and the head of government. So uh, the president in any one day might declare war and pardon a turkey or um, cut a ribbon for some new thing, you know, like a rose garden, you know, or you know, something like that and declare it National Fish Week or something, um, and then also meet, you know, with nuclear leaders about some some very pressing foreign policy issue. So, uh, whereas England would have uh, the prime minister to do government work and the queen to be a national symbol and figurehead, the president does both. And it's it's a great deal to ask of someone. Uh, it's a very great deal to ask of someone. Let's make clear what the president of the United States can do by the Constitution and what that president cannot do. Okay. The president is supposed to see that the laws are faithfully executed. The president cannot make laws. Any what we call money bills, any bills involving budget things um, have to originate in the House of Representatives. So those don't even have to, to start in Congress somewhere. They specifically have to start in the House. Uh, which the founders thought would be the chamber closer to the people. And they were trying to keep the money closer to the people and the control of the money closer. Uh, so the president cannot um, simply say we're going to, uh, he can't put forward a money bill, spending bill, a tax bill, something like that. Um, can't The president doesn't decide where the money goes. That's a congressional kind of thing. The president nominates people for vacancies to the Supreme Court. Uh, for example, um, and can can fill other judicial appointments as well. The president can fill vacancies. So if a senator were to die, for example, or a member of the House, something like that, the president can fill a vacancy on a temporary basis. Um, these are not supposed to um, be situations where a president waits till Congress goes out of session. If Congress is in session, that's different. But if, if Congress is out of session, the president gets a little bit more power. So a Congress um, dealing with a president they felt was encroaching on their power might be wise not to go out of session. But um, the president can only, um, it's quite clear in the Constitution, uh, can only send Congress home if it's a matter that they're trying to decide uh, when to stop working and the two chambers can't decide. So if it's just a matter of they can't decide which date they're going to cut off their session, the president can say, oh, good grief, you know, we're picking Tuesday, guys. And then that's never happened. It's not likely to happen, uh, but that is a thing a president can do. Um, the, the president does have wide-ranging uh, privileges and, uh, and responsibilities. So the Constitution, as I understand, outlines six specific roles of the president. Uh, you've mentioned chief administrator, chief of state, chief diplomat, chief executive. 
it says also that he's chief legislator. Yeah, he has the power to ask for things. He has the power to suggest a, a, a law to Congress or to ask for something, but he does not have the power to make that law. And Congress is not obligated to listen to that suggestion. No, no. And Congress typically does what Congress wants, uh, which is their role. Um, because of the checks and balances and so on, you, there's a requirement to, to do oversight there. There's a responsibility to do oversight. And of course, I think the role that most of us remember clearly and, and have probably had the most interaction with is being commander in chief of the armed forces. Yeah. And of course, when George Washington started, um, you know, he did so much to make that office and no one had ever done it. They didn't really quite know how to do it. And one of the reasons that Washington is listed as so high uh, in the list of presidents, um, at least for most for most of us, uh, is simply his wisdom and the way he created that office. Of course, he was the one who came up with the term Mr. President. Uh, he was asked what he wanted to be called. And um, John Adams thought it should be some kind of um, fancier title. But otherwise, he, it was just Mr. President. But um, Washington, uh, when the Whiskey Rebellion broke out, uh, and there were rebels in Western Pennsylvania uh, over a, a tax on whiskey. Washington led troops to battle himself personally. I mean, he he, he strapped on his sword and he mounted his horse and he rode off. And um, and he was a general, tried to stop him, you know. <laughs> but nobody quite knew what do you do as commander in chief in that. I mean, are you supposed to actually ride into battle? Um, and of course, that has gone away and, and should that that sort of view of it was basically Washington alone. Um, Abraham Lincoln was under fire as commander in chief during the Civil War. Uh, the man standing next to him was killed. He simply uh, led troops down the road. He did not lead them in battle in a, a command sense. He's in a simply walking in front of them since uh, he led troops uh, to the battle. But presidents have not taken this and should probably, perhaps I'm inserting my own view here, but I, I don't think that would be a safe thing to do. I'm Maria Morgan. Katie Kennedy, she taught American government for 30 years, and she's written a children's book called The Constitution Decoded. The Constitution is very serious about separation of powers. There's three powers. They're separated. Yeah. Give us a, a 10th grade American government refresher on that. Okay. Um, the, um, the Constitution sets up a government in three branches. They're the executive, which is the president. Uh, the legislature, which is Congress, in, in two two chambers, but the Congress, uh, and the judiciary, or the judges and the, the, the court system. Uh, and it sets them up uh, within the structure of the Constitution is the legislature first, uh, and in the most detail, because clearly that's where the Constitution writers thought the real action would be. Um, the idea was that these the, those three branches had to... Um, to be able to operate independently and to be able to check each other, to check the power uh, of each other uh, in order to keep things safe. So, the, you know, the legislative branch, the Congress, puts laws into effect. And it's the one that decides what money gets used for what. Um, you know, money bills again starting in the House of Representatives. The executive branch, the president, uh, is supposed to um, see that the laws are faithfully executed to administer public policy. And to, to make sure the things that Congress has said are supposed to happen actually happen. And again, you have this huge bureaucracy uh, to to help the president carry that out. And then the judicial branch uh, interprets the Constitution at the Supreme Court level. Um, in particular, 
because the Constitution ultimately says what the Supreme Court says it says. And since it is the court that interprets the Constitution, who serves on the court becomes a really important issue. And there are so few justices. Uh, the Constitution does not specify how many uh, members of the court there will be. Uh, so presidents have in the past, uh, notably Franklin Roosevelt, um, but some others as well, tried to manipulate the number a little bit uh, to get more favorable kinds of rulings. Um, Thomas Jefferson played that game a little bit. And um, so um, you know, the judicial branch uh, makes sure that the laws are applied and um, does any interpretation of, of constitutional points uh, as they're brought forward. All put in place to prevent any one of those three branches from becoming a king. Exactly. From, from any one of those branches from becoming um, too powerful. Now, we have seen for, I mean, a century, certainly, um, the executive branch kind of on the ascendancy. Uh, and um, that probably is, is more true than it ever has been. Uh, but there's been a, a, a quite a, 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 if we were to draw the graph, we'd see that line going up. Uh, for the powers of the presidency and what historians call the imperial presidency um, of increasing uh, power accruing to the president. So that is a little bit of a concern uh, to constitutional scholars as well. What in your mind is the brilliance of the U.S. Constitution? What made you study it for 30 plus years and write about it? (laughs) Um, The Constitution is this beautiful aspirational document that people can govern themselves, that people do not have to be under the the heel of a tyrant, uh, that there is a possibility of peaceful um, life with your neighbors, with your family, and that we have within us the capacity to rule ourselves, uh, that we do not have always to be in a position uh, of, of being subject to tyranny. Uh, the very faith that James Madison had in us, I think, is is touching, um, and I hope not misplaced. But it's it's a beautiful document. They worked so hard, and this it's a document of genius. Um, it's not perfect. Um, I, I should you know say that uh, they left the slave trade in. Um, they had to debate it. They wanted to take it out. Georgia and South Carolina wouldn't allow it, and, and that was basically the the price for for getting those states in. Uh, into the United States. And so, you know, of course, the, the Constitution protected the slave trade uh, for 20 years after it was written. It couldn't be abolished until 1808. Uh, and Congress put in a law that it would be abolished on January 1st, 1808. And they passed the law ahead of time, so it would go into effect then. Um, so they did what they could. Uh, so it's not a perfect document. Um, there's, and, and most of those issues have to do with African Americans um, and, and stripping of their rights. So I don't want to present it as, as flawless. Um, but I think that it was, um, I, I think that, that the 14th Amendment to, to rectify some of those things, um, to, to, you know, later on getting into the poll tax and so on, uh, the growth of civil rights has been a tremendously important part, uh, and the, the amendments to um, recognize the rights of minorities, of women, and so on, um, have, have fine-tuned the Constitution and made it better. Uh, but the, the original document itself is such a beautiful, aspirational document um, of hope in our future and hope in ourselves. Uh, that perhaps, against all evidence, we can, in fact, rule ourselves. And it's a republic if we can keep it. If we can keep it, yeah. I just hope that um, kids will get a hold of the Constitution Dakota, this this book that I wrote, or, or any book, uh, anybody's book on the Constitution. And, um, and I'm hoping right now with uh, so many Zoom meetings and so much um, turmoil for so many families that with a, a book that will help explain things to the kids, understand what the document really says, look through it a little bit, uh, see what's in there and what isn't in there, 
you know, we can't safeguard our rights if we don't know what they are. If we don't know what the Constitution says, we can't preserve our government. Thanks again to our guest, Katie Kennedy, author of the illustrated book, The Constitution Decoded. It's a step-by-step guide to the Constitution written for kids. And that's our show. Big thanks to our Closer Look producer, Brad England. I'm executive producer and Closer Look host, Maria Morgan. Next week, let's take another Closer Look.